Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. According to the church calendar, many churches celebrate this Sunday as Pentecost Sunday. So it's fitting that we would take up Acts chapter 2. And I'll be reading from verses 1 through 21. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would encourage us, but that you would also convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would strengthen us to bear fruit and help us in our devotion to you and to one another. Help us to love. So I do pray this morning, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would grow in our capacity to love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke, or Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya beyond the Cyrene and visitors to Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So years ago, I was reading a book True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer was a Presbyterian pastor and also an evangelist, most known for his ministry at Labrie in Switzerland. And in the, in the, towards the end of the book, he asked this question that really messed with me. And here was his question. 
says, if I woke up tomorrow morning and found that all that the Bible teaches concerning prayer and the Holy Spirit were, were removed, what difference would it make in practice from the way we are functioning today? Do you get his question? If we woke up tomorrow and there was no Holy Spirit, how different would our lives look? Do we often function with our actions and with our thoughts as though the supernatural is not there? And what prompted this question for Schaefer was a spiritual crisis that he experienced in his own life earlier. As a pastor coming out of a nasty denominational split with much infighting, what he looked around, what he saw was such a lack of love. And he wondered, if the scriptures are true, why was there such a lack of love for fellow believers and for one's unbelieving neighbors? Especially as we see what fills the book of Acts and the rest of the scripture. And so discouraged, Schaefer went through months of questioning his Christian faith. His wife, Edith, would pray for him as Schaefer would take long walks around the village. And on rainy days, he would pace back and forth in the attic of the barn. But the fruit of that struggle was that he actually became more and more convinced of the authority of the scripture and also the power of the Holy Spirit, which deeply impacted his life and ministry. And specifically, he names three promises that the church has been given. And these are the promises... These promises set the church apart from the world. And these promises are what the world needs to see from the church. Here's what he, here's what he writes, or, or the uh, verses that he lists, the promises. In Acts 1, verse 8, And as I read these, hear these promises to the people of God. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the world. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In John fourteen sixteen through 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Wonderful promises for us and for the church. But in our lives, we we don't always put these promises on display. At times, we struggle to really believe and to live out these promises. Namely, that we've received the power of God for witnessing. That we've received the power of God to walk in the spirit and not to give in to the desires of the flesh. And the promise that God is always with us through his spirit, no matter what. So my prayer for us this morning is really this, that this morning would be a reminder of the tremendous gift that we have been given in the Holy Spirit. And so let's turn our attention to the day of Pentecost and to the pouring out 
of the Holy Spirit. So as we come to the book of Acts, in Acts, um, the, the fuller title of this would be the Acts of the Apostles. And this is uh, the ministry of the Apostles after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Recall that in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. I just read uh, the John 14 passage where Jesus had told his disciples that he has to go away. But that is for their own good, that when he goes away, he'll send another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with them. And then we see this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, that while Jesus was with them before he ascended, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And we know that they're waiting for this Holy Spirit, according to Acts 1.8, to receive power when the Spirit comes upon them so that they will be his witnesses throughout the world. And so the disciples are at Jerusalem awaiting the Holy Spirit. And at this point, the disciples have increased from 12 to 120, Acts tells us. So as we come to Acts chapter 2, we can break this down into three sections. Acts 2, verses 1 through 13, the, uh, Luke gives us the account, a description of the day of Pentecost. And then from verses 14 through 41, he explains the significance of this day. And then after that, verses 42 through 47, we see the effects of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the early church. So in verses 1 through 13, we see this is no ordinary day and no ordinary crowd. In verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks. It was a harvest festival that would celebrate the end of the grain harvest and, and celebrate the provision of God to his people. And as well, by the time of the early church, Pentecost uh, the day of Pentecost also became known as a celebration celebrating the anniversary of the giving of the law by Moses on Mount Sinai. So this is a significant time of celebration. Luke tells us that they were all together in one place. Most likely, this is referring to the 120 disciples at this point. And Luke doesn't specify where this place is. That's not the detail that's important. What's important is what is about to happen. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Okay. So wind in scripture often symbolizes the presence of the Holy Spirit. So there's this sudden rush of wind. And then next in verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And this is in fulfillment of Luke chapter 3, verse 16, when John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus and said this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And fire often is a symbol of God's power and his presence throughout the scriptures. Think the burning bush and Moses. Think about the pillar of fire in the Old Testament protecting the Israelites. Think about the fire surrounding Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And then verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
So the Greek here indicates that the filling of the Holy Spirit was not like in the Old Testament when the Spirit would come and go, but rather this is a once-for-all filling. On this day of Pentecost, the full ministry of the Holy Spirit arrives and indwells believers permanently, and the result is that they become the mouthpiece of God to the nations. In verses 5 through 13, Luke describes uh, the crowd at this point, and we recognize that this is no ordinary crowd. In verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So gathered in Jerusalem for this day of Pentecost are a crowd of devout Jews, God-fearing Jews. And this crowd would include those who lived in Jerusalem as well as those who are visiting or pilgrims that have come to Jerusalem from other nations, from other places, in order to uh, celebrate Pentecost. And then verses 9 through 11, Luke names 15 of these nations of which the Jews would travel from. And in Luke's mind, he uses, uh, we could see it on the map, he moves from east to west and north to south speaking of these nations that are surrounding the uh, Roman Empire. And these Jews represent the world at large. So many of these Jews would speak the the language of their native countries. Okay, so don't miss the significance here. On this day of Pentecost, the witness of the church is going to move worldwide. And then verses 6 through 8 At the sound of the wind, they rush over, bewildered, hearing these Galileans. Now, you have to understand about, you know, Galileans. They were, you could say, rural folk, um, not known for being civilized. And they're hearing these Galileans speak in their own native languages. And so they were amazed and astonished. Amazed and astonished. Put yourself in, in their shoes. All of a sudden, having an encounter where somebody is speaking your language. Now, um, this would be this would be like me all of a sudden speaking fluently in French. Now, I took French in high school. Um, I was told at that time that it was the language of love, and I thought, "Sign me up! That sounds great." But uh, French did not love me. Um, I did not love French. In fact, I would say French played uh, play, French played hard to get you could say, with my life. Uh, but I do remember, uh, and sadly, I remember one phrase, and it's this, je suis très, très fatigué maintenant, which is, I'm very, very tired right now. And I know that's a horrible accent. That's really the only phrase that I remember from all my schooling in French. So if I were to speak of the mighty acts of God in French to you right now, that would be a miracle. And that is precisely what's happening here. The disciples are not speaking in a language that they learned. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a miracle of speech that these disciples are speaking in languages that all of these devout Jews that are gathered would understand. And according to verse 11, they're hearing the mighty works of God, most likely regarding the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And then we find in verse 12, there are two responses. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So this group is being drawn in. What does this mean? And then there's verse 13. But others mocked, 
said and said they are filled with new wine. Okay, meaning uh, they're just drunk. They're wasted. So now in verse 14, Peter enters the scene. We have to recognize that this is the same Peter, just flashback, same Peter who on the night before Jesus was crucified, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, Jesus told him to to remain steadfast, to pray that he may not enter enter into temptation. And Peter was sleeping. Then when Jesus was arrested, Peter was following at a distance, afraid to be seen with Jesus. And then in the courtyard at the trial, this is the same Peter that denied Jesus. But before all of this happened, recall Jesus' words to Peter. He said, Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And it is this time that's come for Peter to strengthen the the brothers. So Peter stands up and he says this. He says, listen, everyone. They're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Now, in case some of you out there think uh, that maybe someone in the crowd yelled out, well, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, that's impossible because that phrase was not invented until 2003 with Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett. That's a reference to a country song, If I Lost You. What Peter actually does is says, no, they are not drunk. The explanation for all of this is that this right here in this time and place is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And so Luke gives this account um, of Joel chapter 2 and verses 28 through 32 in its entirety here. Verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay, last days. These are loaded words. The Old Testament pointed towards the future of a time when God would break in in salvation and judgment. And the book of Hebrews picks up this theme of the last days. And the book of Hebrews opens with this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, these last days begin with the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit. We could say that we have been in the last days ever since the first coming of Christ. And we will continue in these last days until he returns. Joel says that God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And that all flesh meaning all kinds of people. No distinction of gender. This will include sons and daughters. No distinction of age. It's young and old. No distinction of social status. It's masters and servants. This is radically different. We have to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come upon people in the Old Testament, special people for special tasks. We could think of the craftsmen who built the temple, that the Spirit would come upon them in the building of the temple so that it would be faithful and beautiful to the design of God. We can think about the prophets, who the Spirit would come upon them so that they would faithfully speak the truth of God. We can think about the priests. The Spirit would come upon them so that they would be faithful to the sacrificial system. 
and to bring in people before God. We can think of kings. Spirit would come upon them so that they would faithfully lead in righteousness. But now in Acts 2, what's different is that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on believers permanently so that they will prophesy. And what does that mean, to prophesy? This context, we're not talking about prophecy in the sense of just telling the future, or predicting the future. Simply put, to prophesy is to speak the truth about God. Or we could say it according to verses uh, or verse 11, to declare the mighty works of God. And in chapter 1, verse 8, to be his witnesses. This is the idea of prophecy. And these witnesses are to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem to Judea and into Samaria and into the end of the earth. Joel wasn't the only prophet who spoke of this glorious day of the Lord when the Spirit of God would be poured out. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, feel free to turn there, but you've got to be quick because I'm going to keep going. Jeremiah 31, verses 30, uh, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of that land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of, this is all about Jesus. That through him, through his faithful life and his death on a cross, we have the forgiveness of our sins. And this new covenant is different. Rather than the law being written on tablets of stone, the law through the power of the Holy Spirit will be written on the hearts of believers through the ministry of the Spirit. The prophet Ezekiel also spoke of this day in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28. And I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Again, this promise of forgiveness of sin and this new heart and this new spirit that will be within believers. And recall, following up on these, the ministry of Jesus. And when he was with his disciples, in John 14, uh, John 14 through 16, those chapters um, speak of the promise that Jesus gave his disciples regarding the Holy Spirit. He said that before he died, before, uh, once he, before he died, after his death, before he would... Um, before he would ascend to the Father, the importance of what would happen there. Once he's at the right hand of the Father, he would pour out his Spirit. And the idea there 
is that he would send another helper to provide encouragement, counsel, and strength. He'll care for them in the same way Jesus cared for them. The Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Spirit will teach and guide the church. So now all believers receive the ability to know God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then, in verses 19 through 21 of of Acts chapter 2, the conclusion of this prophecy of Joel, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this speaks of signs and wonders. And those signs and wonders happened at the crucifixion of Jesus when the sun was darkened as Jesus was enduring the last judgment for his people. And then in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, speaks of these signs of wonders at the end of the age, that the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned like blood. So here's the question. Why does Joel prophesy about the outpouring of the Spirit and then immediately about the end of the world? It's because Pentecost has ushered in the last days. And there's a sense of urgency. The point is that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's poured out the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is to be with his witnesses to carry the truth of the gospel to the ends of the earth until Jesus returns. And with this promise, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then in verses 22 through 36... Peter explains this prophecy of Joel, and he points it all to Jesus. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And to summarize, Peter says this. He says, listen, in verse 22. Jesus was attested to you by God through signs and wonders. And then verse 23, but you crucified him. And then verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. Fulfilling the scriptures. And then verse 33. And he was exalted to the right hand of God. And has poured out the Holy Spirit. And then listen to how Peter ends his sermon. Okay, when I was in preaching class, our professors would get onto our our case at times if we would, at the end of our sermon, kind of ramble on. They'd be like, hey, you've got to land the plane. I would say Peter lands the plane. In verse uh, 34, he says this. Or actually, no, I'm sorry. Yes. I have to find it. Uh, In verse 36, it says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then what's the response? We see this in verses 37 through 41. They're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the apostles, what should we do? And the response from Peter is in verse 38, repent, meaning turn and trust. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized. This would be uh, humbling for 
someone who is Jewish because they would understand baptism as what a Gentile convert would need to do coming into Judaism. But what Jesus is saying, or I, I should say what, uh, what Peter is saying to them at this point is, no, you need to be baptized in order for this, it's the outward sign to identify the inward reality of the cleansing and forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter goes on to talk about this gift, that this gift is for those of you that are hearing, but also for your children and for those who are far off. By God's grace, that includes us as well. And then verse 41 so that those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So in one day, the church grows from roughly 120 to roughly 3,120. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. So let me just pause and ask this question. What's the greatest gift you've ever received? Okay, without thinking deeply, you know, this would be a great icebreaker question. Without thinking deeply, I'd say, oh, my 16th birthday, right after, my, right after um, I blew out the candles, my dad looks at me and says, son, you might want to go check out the garage. So, you know, I tiggered down the stairs, went to the garage, opened the garage door, and there it was. 1981, step side, pickup truck, midnight blue, chrome wheels, glass packs. For those of you that may not be aware of what glass packs are, that's what makes a truck rumble obnoxiously and annoys civilized people. I was raised in Missouri. Um, but here's the question. Is that the greatest gift? I, I, I'm sure you see where I'm going with this. What's the greatest gift that you've ever received? If we think more deeply about this, we would recognize the greatest gift that we've ever received on this earth pales in comparison to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love, the Lord of the universe, his love poured into our hearts through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's through this gift that the Apostle Paul can, de uh, can declare at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then it's uh, Paul can also declare at the end of Romans 8, there is also no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ. And then in between, in the middle of Romans 8, we have this, the beautiful truth, that we have not received the spirit of slavery to where we fall back in fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father. So God for us, if we're in Christ, has gone from a judge to a father. We can cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God, and, and Romans goes on to say, in heirs, H-E-I-R-S. Heirs, meaning we inherit all the good promises of the Scriptures. So with that, the greatest gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? And then what's the effect of this gift? Not only in individual lives, but what's the effect of this gift on the church? 
So this is where we could look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Before I do this, a quick disclaimer. If you're in a small group Bible study or a life group, it doesn't matter how good and powerful the teaching is that day. You should not expect a sudden wind and fire and for everyone to begin speaking in different languages, right? Uh, the reason I say that is what took place prior to verse 42 This is the day of Pentecost. It's unrepeatable. It was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel that would take place in a particular time in history to launch the early church in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So we should not expect those same signs and wonders. But what should we expect? We should expect a Christian life that is characterized by the work of the Holy Spirit. And in a word, we could say... Devotion, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Again, in a word, devotion. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, meaning scripture, to one another in fellowship with glad and generous hearts, to worship both in the temple, corporately, as well as in in their homes. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to evangelism. So I have a few concluding thoughts uh, in closing, just um, based on what the early church was devoted to, as well as what we are called to, as as far as being fully devoted to God, fully devoted to one another, and fully devoted to those who are outside the church. As far as devotion to God, we must always watch our lives. Is anything sneaking into my life that can grieve the Holy Spirit and, and uh, dull my devotion to God? I was rereading this section. I mentioned um, the book True Spirituality. I was rereading the section this morning um, and want to share this with you all. Schaefer says this, says, is it possible even after you're a Christian to put, to put ourselves into the arms of someone else and bring forth his fruit in the world? It is possible as a Christian to be bringing forth the same kind of fruit now as we did before we were Christians. says, why? Because we are yielding ourselves to the wrong one, specifically to the old master of ours, the devil, Satan. He goes on to say, when I have accepted Christ as my savior, I am also immediately in a new relationship to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of the whole Trinity. He's the agent of the crucified, the raised, the glorified Christ. If I'm bringing forth something other than the fruit of the spirit, I have grieved the Holy Spirit, who is our divine guest. Dr. Charles Hodge expressed it like this. The great distinction of a true Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How careful 
should he be, lest anything in his thoughts or feelings would be offensive to this divine guest. Schaefer goes on, the Holy Spirit is a person, but knowing that he is a person should, rem- should remind us that he can be grieved, he can be made sad. So in Ephesians 4.30, we are told, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed for the day of redemption. Do not make sad the divine guest who lives in you. If you are a true Christian, you are sealed by him for the day of redemption. It is by his indwelling that our continued salvation is guaranteed. Let us not grieve him, make him sad. And he goes on one more short section. We accept Christ as Savior at one moment and our guilt is gone on the basis of the value of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But after we become Christians, the moments proceed, the clock continues to tick, and in every moment of time, our calling is to believe God, raise empty hands of faith, and let fruit flow out from us and through us. He goes on to say, this morning's faith will never do till the noon. The faith of the noon will never do till uh, will never do for supper time. The faith of supper time will not do for the time of going to bed. And he goes on. And his point is, the Christian faith is a moment by moment life. Christian life is a moment by moment life of, of seeking to depend on the Lord, of repenting of sin, of asking for his strength to fill us with his, with his spirit for all that he's called us to do. And regarding devotion to others in the church, we have received the adoption as sons and daughters, the spirit of adoption. And do you cherish your adoption? How about this? Do you cherish all of those who are also adopted? And yes, I know as a church, at times we want to kick each other in the shin It's called family. But here's what we have to remember when times get tough. We've been forgiven. They've been forgiven. We've received the grace of God. They've received the grace of God. God is at work in us. God is at work in them as well. And the scriptures, uh, and Tyler mentioned this earlier uh, as he was leading worship. Talk about the, the generosity of the early church. That love, the love of God was poured out in our hearts through the Spirit, and then the early church, that same love was poured out. And I think this uh, begs the question that in the same way that we see in the early church, the way that they really provided and sacrificed for each other, as COVID continues, uh, this may not be a hypothetical question. What are we willing to do for each other? What are we willing to sacrifice? And regarding devotion to, the, uh, to those outside of our church, verse 47, says they were praising God, the disciples were, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see here is actually a reversal of the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. At Babel, human languages were confused, and the nations were scattered. But here in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, language barrier was supernaturally overcome, and God's people are being gathered. 
but they're being gathered and then sent out with the gospel to the nations made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The sin of Babel was one of autonomy and selfishness. They desired to settle into a comfortable life. That's dangerous. God has called us not to settle in, but he sends us out everywhere we go with the power of the Holy Spirit and the good news of the gospel. And uh, verse 43 for me is a telling verse for this whole chapter. And awe came upon every soul. And are you in awe of the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have received by grace? And now, about speaking in tongues. Oh, look at the time. And let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for pouring out your love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I do pray that we would be in awe of your work. And help us to be sensitive that as you guide and convict us, Uh, that we would love the truth. Help us to believe and live out the promises, the power um, for witness, that we would live in light of the power of the Spirit and that we would bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, help us to believe and live out the fact that you are with us always. Pray that that would encourage and comfort us and strengthen us. We pray that you would continue to add day by day those who are being saved from every tongue and tribe and nation. Father, you know, we know we live in troubled times. Uh, Lord, we think of the tragic death, George Floyd, and we pray for the grieving community, not just in Minneapolis, but throughout our nation. Lord, and especially as increase of riots are happening, please bring peace. Please bring justice. Please raise up Christian voices and Christian churches as salt and light in the midst of a culture of unrest. And Lord, I pray for our own church, that with all of our diversity, whether race or wealth or status or whatever it is, that we would be united as one. Father, the troubled times with COVID-19, please provide your protection. We pray for a vaccine. Pray that you would also use this pandemic as a time for people to look to you as their only hope. And for for those who are near to us who have been affected, whether by fear or finances or health, please provide. And Lord, for the upcoming worship services, I pray that you would provide all that we need to be able to worship together and that you would, as we gather, bring us great joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now receive this as God's benediction, and please stand. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.